Have you ever needed a supportive community in your journey to advance racial equity, stop and prevent oppression, and catalyze change in your life or your organization? Join us in our online community at intentionallyact.com. As James Baldwin wrote, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. Join us online to confront the challenging questions and situations in your journey to advance racial equity as we build community to offer professional, personal, and organizational development, skills, and knowledge. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Atia Martin. Welcome to Intentionally Act Now, a podcast that supports the All Aces mission to activate consciousness, catalyze critical thinking, and transform capabilities that advance racial equity and build resilience within ourselves and our organizations. We feature a wide variety of leading experts in diversity, equity, and inclusion, conflict management, critical race theory, personal growth, and more. Hi, this is your host, Enrico Imanalo. Dr. Laura Emiko-Soltis of Freedom University joined me to film this episode where we talk about the importance of relationships in creating lineages of learning that inform the currents of our present-day understanding and approach to racial and social justice, including labor. We also discuss the idea of human rights, the importance of psychological safety in learning, and how understanding our common history through a lens of racial equity helps us to understand why American notions of illegality in regards to immigration have emerged. Dr. Soltis also shines light on why Freedom U exists, its role as an expression of civil disobedience, and how that existence can help us to rethink our country's relationship with migration and work. Dr. Soltis also invites us to think about what it will take for us to be good future ancestors and to sit with the idea that resistance in its most beautiful form is laughter. Hello and welcome. This is your host, Enrico E. Manalo, and I am joined today by a very special guest, Dr. Laura Emiko Soltis of Freedom University. Emiko has 15 years of experience organizing in the Deep South from anti-death penalty work with the Troy Davis case to organizing immigrant or migrant farm workers rather with the coalition of uh, Imokali, help me out here again. Broccoli workers. Yes, like broccoli you said, and I totally forgot that. I'm sorry about that, everybody. Um, to running an underground freedom school for undocumented students in Georgia. Uh, Charles Black, Dr. Rosalind Pope, and the late Lonnie King, all veterans of Atlanta student movement of the Black freedom struggle, are her greatest mentors. Charles Black was one of Dr. King's eight students at Morehouse College. And with that, how are you today? <laughs> Good morning. I'm hanging in there. How about you? I'm doing okay. I thought I was going to get that uh, the name of that group down, but uh, I did not. So that's a great start. But <laughs> it's all good. But I you mean, have my name right, which is um, always a miracle. So, <laughs> and among uh, other great things, uh, you've previously told me that it is your dog Bento's birthday today. So happy birthday, very much, Bento. I hope you get all of the treats. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. So if you could just tell us a little bit about you, uh, we're going to start out with our, our first question. Uh, how did you uh, fall in love with what it is that you do? Oof, uh, that's a Forrest Gump story. <laughs> but um, I guess the, the shorter version is that, uh, you know, the current work that I do, uh, you know, serving as the executive director of Freedom University, it's really just a fancy title for uh, you know, being a janitor and uh, van driver <laughs> and bail bonds woman and teacher and everything. But, um, you know, running an underground freedom school in the South isn't something I could have ever imagined myself doing. I mean, um, who does, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, over the last, it's going to be eight years this August. Wow. Um, I think I've really fallen in love with this work, um, educating and empowering undocumented students and building beloved community with them, um, maybe for three different reasons or like parts of myself that I bring. And that's being a human rights educator, being a, a biracial woman, you know, a child of a Japanese immigrant mom um, and a first-gen college bound on my dad's side, who's you know a working class um, 
Slovak guy in rural Minnesota. <laughs> and, wow. uh, and then also as a creative person. Um, I grew up as a musician, um, but I also um, am a photographer. That's one of my photographs behind me. And I love creating things. And so, you know, as a human rights educator, um, I, I fall in love with this work because it is deeply fulfilling um, to restore my students' sense of human dignity uh, after a lifetime of really feeling dehumanized and criminalized in this country. And, and you know, as a human rights educator, my job is to also to help deepen their consciousness. Yeah. And when we say critical consciousness, or when I say critical consciousness, um, I'm not talking about flowery ideas, but you know, as a teacher, I'm trying to help them recognize injustice rather than really internalizing their criminality or this dominant narrative be of being illegal. Um, obviously no human being is illegal, but yeah. oftentimes it's internalized, right? And so helping um, them recognize an injustice, assert their human rights, even if they're not a citizen in this country, they're a human being. Mm -hmm. And then also to help them believe that things can change through collective action. And, and like you said in your introduction, thank you so much for honoring my mentors as well. But uh, I think this is fulfilling because I get to be a vessel of knowledge to share with my students what I've learned from my teachers. Wow. And, and I think that there's a lineage of learning that happens in movements uh, that no one is, of course, born woke. <laughs> you know, you have, <laughs> you have people who bring you in and hold you accountable and challenge you. Um, and for me, you know, that was, I got... I was really grateful to have a great K through 12 public education in Minnesota, a full scholarship to the University of Georgia and a fellowship throughout my PhD program. And while that was my formal education, I really got my political education in Immokalee with migrant farmers from Mexico, Guatemala and Haiti. And they were my teachers, right? They were bringing in knowledge from Southern Mexico, the Zapatista movement, um, the, the Mayan struggle against um, genocide in Guatemala um, mm. and Haitian uh, workers who were who were fleeing um, you know political violence um, as boat people to Guantanamo Bay and to Florida and they were bringing in their pro-democracy movement skills and you know I was grateful to be a part of the Student Farm Worker Alliance and learn so much from that community and as you mentioned you know Charles Black who is uh, the chairman of our board at Freedom University he's oh. for yeah for for about 12 years um, and active <laughs> weekly uh, meetings, conversations. Um, and as you mentioned, he was one of eight students in Dr. King's only class that he taught at Morgan's College. And, and so I remind my students that, you know, their teacher, me, my teacher was Charles Black and his teacher was Dr. King. And so in a sense, they're the, Dr. King is their great grand teacher. Right? And so as a teacher, it's really fulfilling. Um, but if I can note, you know, being uh, biracial, um, why this work has been meaningful to me um, and really reflecting on this question, I think that um, even though I'm not undocumented and I have the unearned privilege of being a citizen by the arbitrary location of my birth, which was Minnesota, um, <laughs> now being biracial has for a lot of mixed kids, you know, finding a sense of identity or community is difficult. Um, and, but over time I've become more comfortable being at what um, Gloria Anseldua calls the borderlands of identity. Mm. Being from neither here nor there, feeling never quote American, um, people always asking where I'm from, um, to, you know, going to Japan or Asia and being, you know, as white or basically Swedish. And I do not, you know, look 100% Japanese. And I think that over time, you know, learning to navigate these different worlds and different identities and translate across them, that became my superpower, right? Um, and there's something deeply fulfilling of being able to use your superpower for good. And it can also be healing. Um, and, you know, and in that way, even though I'm not undocumented, I was first gen on my dad's side to go to college. Um, and I know what it felt like, you know, never quite fitting in. And undocumented students feel that in a different way. 
but in a sense, I'm being that mentor to them that I never had um, and helping them feel like that they belong. Um, you know, even if they don't feel quote unquote American, even if many of them went K through 12 here um, or feeling, you know, fully Mexican, Guatemalan, Nigerian, et cetera. Um, and yeah, and then, you know, as a creative, as a creator, um, I love Freedom U in the sense that in the sense that teachers are also coming as students and we come as full human beings, not just clock in, clock out, you're a teacher right now. We are yeah. people. Um, we're held accountable by our students. We are learning from our students and their expertise as undocumented young people. Um, but together we get to co-create, you know, a beloved community and in Dr. King's words, um, or what I would also say is, you know, a small version of the world that we know is possible. You know, and and I I'm usually not one to quote people. <laughs> I only have can quote a few folks, but uh, it really reminds me of um, the words of Anne Braden, who was uh, an anti-racist um, uh, white woman in the South, who really used her position as a white woman to really um, disrupt um, a, a system of white supremacy. But she said that. Um, summarizing like in every age, like no matter the cruelty that's there and that will always be here, there are people who imagined a different world. Yeah. And, and that's what she said was like, what made humans half define, half define is that we can, you know, imagine a world that doesn't yet exist, right? Um, I don't know of any other creature who can do that. And it makes us, you know, delusional sometimes, but <laughs> able to imagine something different and especially when it comes to you know, cruelty or oppression, that there's another world that's possible. And to be able to co-create that in a community is um, why I love this work so much. Wow. There's so much in, in that response. And so I really thank you for that. Like a few things that really resonated with me. Uh, I, I am not biracial, but I grew up in New Hampshire. And, uh, you know, I was growing up uh, late 80s, early 90s, you know, and beyond. Uh, so there weren't a, a whole lot of people that looked like me. Uh, and so in some sense, I never really learned what it is to be Filipino American, right? Because there are significant populations of Filipino Americans, uh, particularly here on the West coast and, uh, you know, in city, large cities like New York as well. Uh, and there are like distinct kind of cultural elements that have evolved and I, I just was not aware of them. And so uh it, it's really funny well it's not really that funny to me but <laughs> when i go back to the philippines sometimes people uh will stop me and ask me just point blank which one of my parents is white and they won't believe me when i say look neither one but i was born in the u.s and i don't know it's this whole dance so uh rather than my superpower being the ability to translate i found that my superpower is uh how to say that maybe misunderstanding like it's something that is proven to be really really pivotal in my own artistic endeavors so mostly in creative writing poetry and uh that's actually what led me to conflict resolution because a lot of people who get into these big conflicts it's from pretty simple misunderstandings uh another thing that i wanted to touch on was um you know your your experience with the emocally farm workers right and you were kind of talking about um how you're able to learn from them right uh and you gain this kind of uh, help people to deepen their critical awareness. Uh, so my mother said to me not too long ago, and uh, you know, she's worked with international students for most of her career. And so I got a great education in that respect, just mm -hmm. from being around her and her students. But what she said to me as I uh, entered into the work of racial equity and conflict resolution was, uh, if I were aware of all the things that you are aware of, I would never be happy. And she was saying it in like a loving kind of joking way, but noting that I was, again, uh, upset about some injustice that I was seeing in the world. And, and I, I totally take her point, but I guess uh, what that brought even more awareness to, to me about was, oh, uh, it's not always clear to people that I am really enjoying this work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I wouldn't keep doing it if there wasn't, if there weren't great joy in, in doing it, right? Great 
personal satisfaction, uh, a great sense that I am not only trying to do the right thing, but always trying to figure out what the right thing is and to surround myself with others who are doing the same. And it's been like, I've never felt more connected or more in community with people, which is kind of the amazing thing. So, uh, you know, that was not a dig against my mom. Uh, and you know, it's kind of just like, Hey, you know, even though these are heavy subjects, uh, we, what we know is that heavy loads get lighter when there's more hands to lift. So So, uh, just to kind of pivot into our, our questions here, uh, right. So you, you mentioned that, uh, your, your mentor, right. And that your mentor was, was part of the only class that Dr. King kind of taught. Mm-hmm. And so there's this idea of educational lineage or, uh, mm-hmm. an, uh, a family tree of knowledge is so, so beautiful. And I wonder if you'd talk about that a little bit more. Sure. Uh, I think there's, you know, when Freedom U students, you know, especially at graduation, reflect on their experience at Freedom U, they often talk about it feeling like a family. Um, and, and I don't know, I have critiques of like the use of, you know, the language of family constantly, but that, you know, obviously we're born into a family, but we can also create family or community. And, um, and I think, uh, what the students are feeling is just a different kind of love, right? Mm. Um, and I think that comes through being vulnerable in in our learning process, right? Um, that's how Freedom U is different as well. Uh, even though you know the vast majority of our faculty are people of color, we have undocumented or formerly undocumented faculty. You know, the majority um, of our faculty are coming in without. Uh, intimate knowledge of what it means to be undocumented. And instead of treating undocumented students as, you know, these empty receptacles that need to be filled, you know, what Paulo Freire calls like the banking model of education. Mm-hmm. You know, when I recruit faculty and we are you know, preparing them to teach at Freedom U, we have three DACA staff members too, who are helping to train these faculty before they come into our classrooms is, you know, to make sure they are fully recognizing undocumented students as human beings, first and foremost, who are also like experts (laughs) on what it means to be undocumented, what it means to be an immigrant in the South, and that we are also coming in as as students. And, and, you know, that human rights education component um, that is central to our liberatory education model um, is also, you know, something I very much learned from the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, like I said, part of my lineage in my teachers, but also Charles Black and Rosalind Pope and Lonnie King, who you mentioned, um, were also uh, members of the Atlanta student movement. Um, and that was kind of a, a partner organization to SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, but why I think the Atlanta student movement is critical in understanding um, about student movement history is that this organization used a human rights framework. and. What I mean by human rights framework versus a civil rights framework is that civil rights are one of five pillars of human rights. Mm. So human rights are political rights, like the right to vote, civil rights, non-discrimination, economic rights, like the right to join a union, social rights, like the right to education, cultural rights, like the right to speak your own language and have your own culture. And these students of the Atlanta student movement were framing their black freedom struggle in terms of human rights. Mm -hmm. Um, And only, you know, 12 years before, you know, they published um, in 1960, March 9th, 1960, an appeal for human rights. And it was written by now Dr. Dr. Rosalind Pope. Um, I think in the kitchen of Howard Zinn, by the way. Really? At the time. Yeah. And, um, you know, this only 12 years before was the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was proclaimed um, at the start of the United Nations after the devastation of World War II. And young people were trying to frame the Black freedom struggle in terms of human rights. Mm-hmm. And you know, it eventually, in common language, became known as the Civil Rights Movement. But it was really a civil rights era of desegregation and non-discrimination, the Civil Rights Act. But that was part of a larger freedom struggle that was um, a human rights struggle that was, you know, recognizing the full spectrum of human rights. And I think that that deeply impacted me 
um, of using a human rights framework, um, of understanding the Black freedom struggle through a human rights framework um, that um, you know, W.B. Du Bois and many other um, people in the Black freedom movement were using a human rights framework as well. Um, Carol Anderson and her work, Eyes Off the Prize, you know, does an incredible job of reclaiming that history. Um, but yeah, that human rights framing in the South for undocumented young people, that's how Freedom U is different. And that comes from, um, you know, when I called myself a vessel, you know, this isn't, you know, Emiko's like introduction to freedom. I was passing on knowledge. Right, right. And that was given to me by migrant farm workers in Florida that was shared with me through, um, you know, veterans of the Black Freedom Movement. And my job is that vessel, that lineage of connecting that to students. So uh, as you were just talking now, something occurred to me that made me love that explanation so much more. Uh, I'm going to make an assumption here that, like myself, you have received the following question at some point in your life, if not once, multiple, perhaps multiple, multiple, multiple times, <laughs> which is, where are you from? No. Where are you really from? <laughs> and so I'm not satisfied with Minnesota, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, in in if there are people out there watching who are like, you know, right now Googling Freedom U, there might be some people who are like, What? Uh, a university for undocumented students. This lady's been talking about human rights, but what about you know our rights, that kind of thing? Mm -hmm. So effectively saying, like, where are you from? Where are you really from, Freedom U? You know, and so having that that kind of lineage is such a great way to be like, what do you mean? Where am I from? <laughs> you know, we're human beings. Yes. And that yeah. is a like logic of human rights is that these rights aren't yours because of where you're born or what borders you cross. If you're a human being, these rights pertain to you by virtue of your humanity. Yes. Right. They can never be taken away from you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that framing is critical, especially in, um, you know, a world of globalization where, you know, our social world has been compacted and where, you know, goods and ideas and the internet makes things travel across borders easily. But the only things that really can't are human beings. Right. That allows borders to really reinforce, you know, a dual labor market, you know, in the United States of citizens and non-citizens and keep people from, globally from traveling um, across borders, like, again, like shoes do, <laughs> but like human beings can't, right? Yeah. And um, you know, data can be transferred easily across borders. Um, and it allows, you know, the descendants of countries that colonize the world to travel the world freely, primarily yeah. the United States and Europe to have visas, but sometimes they don't even need visas to enter most countries. Mm. You know, people who are formerly colonized or mainly people of color around the world are unable to travel the world freely. And so issues of citizenship, you know, are fundamentally, you know, at odds with that's the riddle of human rights is that right now, um, you know, the, the global system requires countries to implement human rights, but the right to free movement, Article 13 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, we need um, you know, to be teaching a human rights framework to recognize human beings as having rights rather than simply citizens. Yeah. And just to kind of clarify here, there are a lot of people who treat rights as a, as a consumable, as a resource, mm -hmm. right? And I think that just really speaks to, uh, well, frankly, how, how deeply ingrained capitalism is into how we see things. Yeah. And I, I bring this up because uh, I'm a conflict resolution person, more of a conflict management person, to be quite honest. Uh, but really, one of the, the key things that gets people into conflicts is competition over scarce resources. Mm -hmm. To be super, super clear, human rights are not resources and they are not scarce because they cannot be taken away from people, right? So there's it, there's no sense in fighting some like, Somebody is not taking your human rights simply by existing. That's not how it works. And so that reframing is super, super important. And it is not a zero sum game. When other people's rights are respected, you do not lose your rights. You know? Right. Um, so exactly what you said that 
you know, rights aren't a resource, they are inherent to our humanity and they're either respected or not. And when other people's human rights are violated, it threatens your own. And that is why we all have an interest in making sure that everyone's human, human, human rights are respected. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, in some sense, if we're looking at the uh, at the history of this country, it does make sense that we we kind of developed this culture of focusing on rights because uh, many people immigrated to this country. And so they did not have the well-established social structures from where they were coming from. And so when a lot of strangers come together, uh, you have to set ground rules so that because everybody's bringing different perceptions to the table. And so especially in our, our nascent nation's history, they really helped us to get along with each other. But at some point, just like with the person to person interaction, uh, uh, some level of politeness, like let's say you've known somebody for 30 years and they're still being very polite with you, you get the sense that they don't really want to hang out with you so much, right? <laughs> like you're not going to go get a beer after work or like just pop by, right? So, politeness in some sense keeps people at a distance. Yeah. And which is not to say that we should get rid of rights, but I'm saying like maybe we should get beyond focusing on those rights uh, and to that humanity right so past the right of having humanity to actually just the the person that that holds that and uh i i see that as particularly important because uh as many people have noticed the social structure the social fabric of this country is very thin mm -hmm. right so people identify more with their political party than say their neighbor one state away, right? Exactly. And or so entering- oh. <laughs> <laughs> Or their neighbor down the street, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and actually to that point, I had a student once from Spain and uh, he was asking me why none of his neighbors would say hello to him when he greeted them in the morning. And he was really struggling for words. And eventually what he landed on was when somebody sees you and they don't say good morning back to you every day, it feels violent. Mm. And I had to sit with that for a minute because I, I grew up like that, you know, and I, I wasn't realizing that where he was coming from, it's a much different social atmosphere. And so just in thinking about that with, you know, in the context of your students, uh, you know, how important is freedom you to, you know, you mentioned you have your criticisms of the overuse of the word family, but how, how critical is that to helping people to get to like a psychologically safe enough place where they can do real learning? Yeah, what I said, like critical of the use of the word family is in its narrow definition of people you're related to, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And how that word has been weaponized family values to like cause a lot of <laughs> violence and exclusion. Um, but, you know, something else that you brought up is like, rights gave us a, a common ground to, to speak to one another. Um, yes and no, because rights haven't obviously equally applied to everybody. Then <laughs> yeah. like, it gives us something to fight for and recognize that rights are being violated. And what are rights is up for debate. And um, it has always been contested. And it, it's an invention. It's a human invention <laughs> um, in order to, you know, um, have some ethical order in how we treat one another. Right? Mm -hmm. um, Odo is one of the earliest forms of <laughs> rights in trying to dictate how we should treat one another. Um, but, you know, I think, oh, I want to honor your question. Would you mind asking me one more time? I was about to go off on a tangent. <laughs> Oh, thank you. I'll, I'll see if I can if I can remember. I was asking about uh, the importance of uh, psychological safety and kind of how people, uh, you know, might access that so that they can learn through having some kind of family structure mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, that kind of relational dynamic. Yes, psychological safety is so key to being able to to learn, period. Um, and and I would say that at Freedom we create that um, you know, obviously 2020 has been different. We're all on Zoom as of March 2020. But prior to that, you know, we met in person every Saturday and Sunday. Um, and we meet on the weekends because many of our students work low-wage jobs Monday through Friday. And uh, weekends are really the only time we can gather. And we would, 
every year we would switch locations, but our location was always confidential. Wow. And that was to protect the safety of our students and provide, like you said, that psychological sense of safety. And, and, you know, my family doesn't even know where Freedom U meets. It's a, I honored that being um, confidential. And I think that that's part of that safety, but I think also, um, you know, some, so many ways our students are, are positioned isn't simply that they're undocumented. They're also first generation college bound. They're also overwhelmingly low income. 99% of our students are students of color. Um, and on, on that note of like race and immigration, I don't want people to think that when we say undocumented, we only mean Latinx. Mm. The fastest growing undocumented population is Asian. Coming <laughs> um, yeah. with visas and overseeing the term of their visa. Um, about 80% of undocumented people are Latinx, that's true. But about 14% or one in seven is Asian. And about 5% or one in 20 is black or identifies undocumented black. And less than 1% are of European descent or identify as white. So when mm. we are talking about undocumented immigration, we're also speaking in terms of racial justice. Um, and that this is, and taking away the language of race, um, I think undermines this, this connection and this history of, of immigration and the recruitment of people of color to, to provide cheap exploitable labor. Yeah to exclude them politically and exclude them for political power. That has been um, a part of US history since its founding, right? And when you take out that racial component, you are taking it apart from that, that history um, and why we have the creation of modern illegal immigration, right? And illegal yeah. immigration in quotes. Um, and so, you know, I say all of that to say that, you know, undocumented students face other challenges as well. and sometimes I wonder, you know, how Freedom U will change if there's, you know, a DREAM Act or um, fundamental changes to many of our students' status, you know, will Freedom U serve only undocumented people? And that's a question that we will tackle <laughs> if and when that happens, hopefully soon. Um, but at the same time, what provides that safety is that every student is undocumented at Freedom U. You know, sometimes I struggle should we also invite other students of color who are first generation, right, um, college bound, um, people from mixed status families, et cetera. You know, um, one in 13 students in Georgia public school classrooms have at least one undocumented family member. Wow. Um, and so this is pervasive and many um, of our students have citizen siblings, right? And mixed status families are extremely common. And but I think what makes students feel safe fundamentally is that all of the other students at Freedom U are undocumented. Um, many of our students share that most of their childhood and especially in high school, um, even being you know, deeply honest people, they had to lie a lot in order to protect themselves yeah. and to keep a secret, right? And mm -hmm. the, the, the burden that creates, um, the, the dissonance that creates in themselves, um, that melts away when they come to Freedom U. They don't have to lie anymore why they don't have a driver's license or why they can't go to college or why they can't study abroad. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows. And, you know, it. they're even able to laugh and joke about things that they can't joke with anybody else, you know? And, and I think that that fundamentally is why um, that psychological safety is provided at Freedom U is because all the students share similar experiences. They're different. Um, and they're able to not be undocumented for a little bit too. Yeah. Least, right. They can just learn. <laughs> um, and, you know, and our arts classes are critical for that, our mental health workshops, um, where they can just, you know, focus on painting or dancing and not hiding and lying and finding runarounds <laughs> constantly. They can just be. So for anybody that's out there watching and wondering about the burden that Emiko is talking about, I can't directly relate to that because I've never been undocumented. But uh, what I can say is uh, in my 20s, I lived in Vietnam for about five years. And it was the strangest kind of most liberating feeling at first because 
for once in my life, I was not a Filipino American man. I was simply an American. And the the difference in experience kind of blew my mind. Like I didn't really realize how much of a burden that had been until it was taken off. Mm-hmm. And just to kind of underscore the point of uh, mixed status families, uh, in my own extended family, and I won't say who, who of course, mm-hmm. but um, there's a lot of paperwork that legal migrants to this country have to go through. And it's often, as you can imagine, very inconvenient and time sensitive. And expensive. I'm sorry, say again, really expensive, really expensive, really expensive. even mm-hmm. if not just uh, financially in terms of time. Right. Because you might have to go to an office and do all this stuff. Long story short, one of my cousins, um, you know, his paperwork lapsed. And so for a while he was illegal. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. 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 I'm sorry about that. He was undocumented. Yes. And um you know, I guess one of the hardest things for me to come to grips with is this is a part of my family that um, that is very against undocumented people. They vote that way. And, uh, you know, sometimes are vocal about it. And I don't know how that how they're dealing with, you know, that cognitive dissonance of having once been undocumented themselves. But um you know, it, it's this curious thing that somehow people get into their head like, oh, this thing is wrong. Therefore, these people are wrong. And, you know, the, not necessarily holding that complexity of what is morally right and what is it's not even morally. about ethics per se. Yeah, it's it's a historical mm. right? that like who is undocumented has changed over time. Mm hmm. Yeah. When European col- like settler colonialists, colonialists came here, they did not have papers. They created <laughs> a concept of citizenship, right? So they were undocumented. Um, indigenous people, um, you know, were the only ones, and the only ones who can claim, <laughs> um, you know, that they weren't undocumented immigrants at some point. Um, and it's not ironic that many of their descendants in the Americas are now people who are called undocumented, right? So a complete lack of history, but also even recent history and how undocumentedness as we understand it was created. And and we have to understand that the the Chinese Exclusion Act and the Page Act of 1875 and the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 really set the groundwork for our modern conception of undocumented immigration, right? The first time the United States was excluding people, right? And particularly based on race and race and immigration exclusion go hand in hand. And, um, you know, in in 1965, this is very recent history. This is the first time that migration from Latin America was really restricted. A lot of people don't recognize that. And so while there had been generations, primarily from Mexico, of workers coming to the United States seasonally, and from 1942 through 1965, the Bracero program that rented workers from Mexico, um, that replaced uh, many Japanese workers in California who were interned, right? Um, They were coming for decades, you know, to provide seasonal labor. And in 1965, um, with a immigration act, it was, those patterns were now criminalized, right? And so it recreated a criminal, it criminalized immigration as we know it. And, um, And so the modern quote unquote illegal immigration, again, was created. (laughs) <laughs> and if it can be created, it can be dismantled. Right? Yeah. And yeah. and and what you said about you know sometimes people who are closest to undocumented immigration or other immigrants are the most fervent um, people against undocumented immigration. That's the irony, and that's all the work that we have to do within our own communities, right? Um, of I've heard many immigrants or children of immigrants say, well, my family did it right. Oh, God. <laughs> um, and and yeah, the, the lack of moral imagination or history is appalling. But instead of judging or casting people aside, you know, the best thing that we can do is bring people into dialogue, right? And and that is essentially why Freedom You exists as well, um, is to provide this extremely rare space where we have these difficult dialogues about race. Um, Freedom U is is different in that it's an extremely racially diverse <laughs> community and organization 
where our students are Latinx, Black, Asian, mixed race, our faculty are incredibly diverse. People range from fully undocumented to DACA to formally undocumented to green card holders to citizens who are naturalized or born here. Like it's it's extremely diverse and and it's it's a rare space where it's safe to make mistakes and to learn from one another for people to share their pain, right? And there's a lot of pain coming from immigrants too, who throw a lot of shade at undocumented immigrants. You know, they probably also sacrifice a lot, a lot, and paid a lot of money and <laughs> waited many years. Um, but you know, most undocumented immigrants come here one of two ways, which is either crossing a border without authorization, oftentimes escaping political violence, escaping domestic violence or sexual abuse, um, drug violence, or people are coming with visas um, and overstaying the terms of their visa. Um, and there are different reasons and ways people become undocumented. And that is so missing from our public discourse um, that rarely do people come here simply because they love the United States and they wanna come here. Yeah. Oftentimes they're leaving everything behind their families, their language, <laughs> their sense of belonging, um, and coming here knowingly subjecting themselves to a very cruel immigrant detention system and being ostracized and being banned from higher education. Yeah. Um, and while paying taxes and not having the right to vote, right? Um, and again, I hope what people take from this conversation too is that there is so much <laughs> beneath the surface of the layer of how people talk about undocumented immigration. Um, and and it's so connected with a long history of, um, yeah, of recruiting people for cheap exploitable labor and including yeah. them politically. You know, well, uh, of course I'm a talker. Um, so I, I tend to talk to a lot of people that I, I, I just meet casually, be that, you know, uh, like a rideshare driver, uh, you know, just people I see on the street, whoever. Um, but I've met a lot of undocumented migrants in, in doing so. And what my own personal kind of conversations have reinforced something that I already knew, but, uh, you know, next time you're, you know, whoever's watching, uh, next time you're able to go to your local Chinatown and uh, enjoy that kind of food, uh, there might be somebody serving you who legitimately could be a nuclear physicist in their home country. Uh, and, you know, like the, there's so much untapped human potential here, like a, a, a truly, truly mind blowing amount. Right. Mm -hmm. Like in the middle of the covid crisis, I hope it's the middle, but uh, closer <laughs> to the end. But uh, there is a shortage of nurses. I, I met two nurses in the past week. But guess what? They weren't born here and their credentials simply don't transfer right. to get recertified as nurses. They have to take classes for like three to four years and take a super hard test. Mm -hmm. And they can't really be working while doing that. That is not a reasonable way to give people access. License for many jobs, you have to be a citizen. What does citizenship have to do with your ability to do a job well? We are yeah. all harmed when people are banned from education or discriminated based on their citizenship status when honestly we I don't care the citizenship status of someone who can do life-saving brain surgery if I need it yeah. I want them to be competent and I want everyone to be able to fulfill their greatest human potential and there's mm -hmm. no reason we should be barring people to again create <laughs> an exploitable labor pool and that is why we have undocumented immigration today. Yeah, not only that, but it strikes me that, uh, you know, it's these large corporations that are choosing to move to lower income countries to yeah. get cheaper labor when we have fully capable people right here to do that work, you know. Yeah. And so it's yet another example of people being misled into thinking that uh, this thing over here is the issue when it's really this thing over here, right? Yeah, look up rather than looking down. Right? And <laughs> Yeah, and that, like you said, when large corporations take their companies and their production abroad, they're often displacing people who become the immigrants that come here, right? So oftentimes that's the root cause. And so that is what happens when capital can cross borders, but labor can't. That's a great point. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I don't want to pivot too quickly from that point because I think it it bears uh, soaking in. But mm -hmm. once again, yeah, uh, we've got to be looking up and not down, and certainly <laughs> not looking down when usually it's actually you know side to side. Um, but we've got a, a comment that's come in. Uh, it's a rather long one. So uh, Miles, if you can display the first part, I'll go ahead and read the rest of it. Thank you. So the past few years, and this question is from uh, Jeffrey Pugh, who actually connected me to, to you. So thank you very much once again, Jeff. Uh, here's the question. The past few years has seen an, a, an explosive increase in direct nonviolent action against injustice in the U.S., and I know that Emiko and others in Freedom U have been involved in some nonviolent campaigns at the Georgia State Capitol and elsewhere. I'm curious about her perception about any differences in effective activist strategies when the activists are immigrants. Have you noticed that there are ways immigrants can be effective in advocating for social change that may differ from the strategies used by other activists? Now, uh, full transparency here. Uh, Jeff has also just released a book called The Invisibility Bargain, and it's all about how migrants, um, when they can't legitimately access state resources, they will seek alternatives. So, uh, yeah, and once again, Jeff is a former professor of mine, so uh, thanks on multiple fronts once again, Jeff. Um, would you mind, so I was trying to take good notes of the question, but uh, summarizing the question, uh, summarizing the question. So, uh, oh, wait, the be effective in advocating for social change that might differ from the strategies used by other activists. Uh, that's a great question. Um, and honestly, it's going to be hard to answer in a minute or two. Um, one, there isn't one strategy. Um, immigrant rights activists are using multiple types of strategies and how Freedom U employees, nonviolent civil disobedience itself changes over time, depends on state dynamics, national dynamics, opening of political opportunities, um, the availability of resources and allies. Oh, there's a lot to consider in, when we're talking about strategy, right? Um, what I do want to mention is that um, the basic logic of nonviolent civil disobedience still applies, right? And how it's been employed around the world over time um, what I do want to make sure that people understand is when undocumented young people in particular, um, starting in probably the mid 2000s to 2010, even DACA, the Deferred Action, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program that was implemented in June 2012 was, while, you know, Obama's credited for it, you know, for uh, announcing DACA, um, which provides, um, you know, uh, protection from deportation, something called prosecutorial discretion, a driver's license, and a temporary social security number, that came about through direct action from undocumented people, right? And that so many of these um, gains and victories, however small or large, are the result of people organizing and demanding um, change and demanding respect. And so recognizing that, you know, how we even understand how we got to this point is the result of activism and and strategy and various strategies on the part of undocumented young people. But what I want people to recognize is the amount of risk involved for undocumented people um, to subject themselves to the criminal justice system. Pre-DACA, people were doing this with the risk of deportation, right? And there are different consequences for people of color who subject themselves to arrest versus white or light-skinned people. Um, and having that on your criminal record or every time you apply for a job to have to explain it when, you know, people are looking at my resume now or in the future and they attach it to my face, they think it's a really interesting question to ask about. Tell me about the multiple times you've been arrested. Right. Whereas for black or dark skinned folks, they see that as an indication of their inherent criminality. Right? Mm -hmm. There are different consequences for a lifetime for people who subject themselves to arrest. So we need to recognize also the privilege and the risks involved in nonviolent civil disobedience. But I think, um, you know, there have been really creative direct actions, um, such as people crossing the border and trying to come back um, and, you know, causing 
essentially why civil disobedience and direct action works is, is it creates a crisis, right? That requires the government to intervene or to respond or to follow law or to revisit it based on whether or not it's just, right? Um, so um, sometimes people call it political theater. I think that that sometimes undermines the seriousness of it. But at the same time, you are setting up um, a, a moral and political crisis, right? Yeah. That is the logic behind the, the lunch counter sit-ins. There's the logic behind um, the freedom riots, right? Um, it was to, to incite violence, in this case, from white supremacists to get the US government to intervene and to deepen dialogue and understanding about the brutality of, of segregation, right? And so undocumented young people, again, are, are using a variety of strategies. Um, I trust their collective knowledge um, and their demands, right? And it's our job as citizens and non-undocumented people to actually stop and listen, right? Rather than saying, go slow, have you tried this? Have you considered? Because I promise you they have, <laughs> right? And, and what I'm hearing from my students as one of the probably only teachers in the country where all of my students are undocumented, um, I'm always in a process of learning and listening, um, is that, you know, right now, you know, the DREAM Act, a lot of people don't understand, a lot of citizens don't recognize that the DREAM Act isn't enacted. It's failed federal legislation for the past 20 years. Wow. It was introduced in 2001. There's another, you know, DREAM and Promise Act um, in going through Congress now that is the 2021 version, but it's been 20 years that we have failed undocumented young people, right? And and for that to be the goal when it protects less than 10% of the undocumented population, right? We need to be listening when people are saying that's not enough, right? We need to be listening when people say DACA is not enough, right? And to, again, expand our, our moral imagination of what is possible and what we demand. Um, and I think COVID has made very clear a million things, but also, you know, 5 million essential workers are undocumented, people who are not just working in the fields, but who are working in the healthcare industry. I think 27,000 DACA recipients were frontline healthcare workers during the pandemic, you know? Um, and COVID doesn't care about your immigration status, <laughs> right? And that's why access to healthcare, everyone benefits, again, when people's human rights are respected, when someone's right to healthcare is respected, <laughs> when yeah. some, you know, right to housing is respected, when healthcare isn't attached to your job, right? That might go under during a global pandemic. And so all of these conversations need to be had, but we can recognize in COVID, we can recognize thinking about direct action strategies that when we think about this in terms of human rights and then not being a zero sum game, we all benefit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about some ways that people can take uh, direct action. Because there is a, in the popular consciousness, uh, people tend to conflate action with protest, right? <laughs> and, you know, I was having a, a conversation with a, a professor of resistance studies at UMass Amherst. That's uh, Dr. Stellan Vintagen, a great guy. Uh, he became uh, really famous for uh, his direct action in Israel. Uh, as part of the Freedom Flotilla, yep. where he uh, created a blockade with uh, some ships, not just him, like, you know, in collaboration <laughs> with others. But uh, one of the things in our conversation that came out was uh, he, he really doesn't like that a lot of people associate any kind of action with protest because there, his part of his joy is coming up with new and creative ways to, 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 you know, be intentional about action. And so I, I think it's important for people to understand that because if they're only kind of referring back to their mental model of what they've seen, then they'll say like, yeah, but protests just disrupt everything, like looting, et cetera, et cetera, you know? Yeah, but what's in the news, right? Yeah. When direct actions and creative civil disobedience often takes the form of creating an underground school and meeting every Saturday and Sunday in a non-glamorous way <laughs> when undocumented students are otherwise banned from equal access to public universities, right? That is a form, you know, I also don't use the word protest like most people use it. It is a form of resistance, yes. right? It's, and not only resistance 
in a, in a, in a negation, but it is creating something. You're going to ban us from school. That's great. We're going to create our own, right? And, and so when we encourage people to partake in direct action, it's not just protest. It's not just showing up to take a selfie and to say that you're doing something. Oh, God. It is about listening is a part of that, being accountable, um, using whatever privileges you may have. We are complex people with many layers of our identities. Yes, of course, there's racial privilege, there's language privilege, there's owning property, owning a home, make those spaces available to people who need to meet, um, who need a home momentarily, right? Um, and yeah, and there's so many ways and there's so many creative ways that we can all be um, participating in a, a freedom struggle. And, yeah. you know, Charles Black, he has obviously deeply influenced um, me in so many ways, but there's this one uh, expression he always comes to that I always ground myself in as well. And that's movements are multidimensional. It requires a deep commitment, high aspirations, a lot of people doing a lot of different things. And that's key, right? Yeah. If we just imagine change makers as people who hold microphones and shout at rallies, who are the people who are taking the notes and driving people and making the food, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and doing the reading and having the dialogues, right? And repairing harm. That's all part of movement work and social justice work. I also add, you know, looking back, a recognition of history and what has been done before, what has worked, what has failed, how things have been co-opted, and then most importantly, doing it for a long period of time, right? And that's what makes an effective movement is all of those multidimensional components. And that always grounds me. And you know what, what you said in your, in both the question and your commentary of like that, it's more than protest. It's, it's a lot of different daily actions that are needed. I think that daily aspect is so, so important. People often hear me and, you know, others in my field talk about how things need to be practices and not interventions. And that gets at that daily aspect. Mm -hmm. And just to clarify for people, uh, you know, you might be thinking, oh, I I'm here in my office. Like, I don't really have time to be an activist. Well, but being an activist can also look many different ways, such as uh, in just being really intentional and proactive about recognizing and relating to other people's humanity. Mm -hmm. And so, you said about being active, because when people ask us, um, ask me, what is liberatory education? Yeah. Right? Um, fundamentally, when I answer that, I recognize, you know, that I explain that Freedom University also is looking at history. We're looking at the Southern Freedom School tradition and that legacy of 1964 when Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee activists went down to Mississippi. Yes, they engage in voter registration drives, but they also established freedom schools with the intention of building up leaders from the grassroots of a different form of education. And so we honor that. Um, of course, Freedom University, our name honors the Southern Freedom Schools, but we also have the best acronym in the world, which is Happy Georgia. And so those, both of those inspirations is behind our name, but fundamentally our name Freedom University is because we are about the practice of freedom, fundamentally. And that is what liberatory education is. And understanding liberatory education from its, its opposite, which is honestly a lot of our traditional education system, it is creating students to become passive rather than students to become active. And so that is the uh, the Prussian model for those taking notes at home. That's <laughs> what our educational system is built on, which was directly created for uh, obedience to the king. Yes. So passivity, obedience, conformity to the present system, where we are ingrained in thinking as normal, white supremacy, yeah. imperialism, capitalism, patriarchy, right? As the assumed normal, right? Yeah. Education for action, as, a as opposed to education for passivity, you know, is education that brings about critical thinking and education that involves, necessarily involves participation in the world. And so again, reclaiming that word activist, um, I also think that it's, it's been co-opted um, <laughs> influencer culture and I hate all of that. <laughs> activist is about literally being active, 
Mm-hmm. That's it. And it can take many forms. I call myself an organizer. I bring people together. who usually aren't in communion together. Um, and I see that as my role, as, as I literally shepherd people. <laughs> um, and, you know, and as an educator, how I've seen my role is also providing an educational space and a place where students are safe and, and free to learn. So with what little time we have left, <laughs> what it went fast, right? But uh, what would you love to see come out of your work? Ooh. Well, I hope Freedom U is just one chapter in my work of, again, organizing and and advancing human rights in whatever role I find myself in. Um, but I hope that I've helped and the legacy that either myself or Freedom U will have is um, helping students, of course, gain access to higher education. You know, so far, the last five years, 50% of our graduating class every year earns a full scholarship to college, and that's wow. huge. And we have changed the admissions and financial aid policies at eight private universities alone. At eight? Yeah, and opening up doors for thousands of other undocumented students. Universities around those other universities, like our campaign at Emory in 2015, then changed their policies. Wow. And private universities can set their own policies. And so that is why that's part of our strategy, in addition to targeting state legislatures and you know, Board of Regents, et cetera. Um, but I think fundamentally, I hope that I'm inspiring an, a generation of freedom fighters, of undocumented freedom fighters, um, and help my students become more free. And, um, and I think that if I can go share a little bit, I know we're running out of time, but- No, go for it. Especially, you know, being in Atlanta as an Asian American woman, the last month has been difficult for a lot of reasons. Um, but I've I've reflected a lot and like why I do what I do, um, and you know, people prying me to answer more honestly, is I I remember vividly, um, I think when I felt most Japanese as a child was learning about World War II in school, and how um, people of Japanese descent were regarded even in our classroom. Um, where like the atomic bombs, the only time atomic bombs have been um, yeah, dropped on people. Like it's not recognized in US history, like a critical analysis of dropping of atomic bombs on human beings um, and the necessity or non-necessity of it. Um, talking about the Japanese internment. And I remember literally sitting, I think in like my ninth or 10th grade history class um, not only was my teacher using the language of Jap, which was insane, um, but also I was thinking to myself, um, why weren't other people standing up for them, right? As Japanese families were being corralled, um, why weren't other people getting in their way? Where were their friends? I just, I remember thinking that literally, just why didn't anyone stand up for them? And yeah. I think, when we are doing our calling, we're also healing ourselves and being good future ancestors, right? And my friend Denisa Livingston talks about this and she's a Navajo um, Dine leader, but to remember that, you know, we are future ancestors and what are we doing to honor that? And I hope that my legacy is that when people look back at, how undocumented people were treated, they see me and many others who weren't directly impacted getting in the way, right? Of police violence, of family detention, of deportations, of modern segregation of undocumented people from public higher education, that people were saying this is wrong and getting in the way and doing something. Um, And so I think fundamentally, and when I say I want my students to be free, I'm trying to also honor um, what Toni Morrison said, which is the purpose of freedom is to free someone else. Yeah. Purpose of freedom is to free someone else. And that guides me. Um, and I think freedom fundamentally means freedom from fear, daily fear, and that 
resistance in its most beautiful form is laughter. <laughs> and like, we laugh a ton at Freedom You. I cry when I laugh, so I constantly have like tears flowing down my face. Um, and being goofy and yeah, being able to share in laughter. And and I came up across this saying uh, from Bobby Sands, who is a Irish um, liberation fighter who said, um, who died when he was, I think, like 27 during a hunger strike. Um, but our revenge will be the laughter of our children. I love it. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes as a teacher, I'm like, we're going off topic. We're like devolving into laughter. But then I was like, you know, that's the whole point. <laughs> it's to free and to laugh. So I hope that that's my legacy on the lives of my students as they feel more free um, and lose their fear. Wow, that's incredible. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it bears repeating that there are oppressive elements that are interwoven through all parts of our society, but especially in education and at work. And so how how beautiful is it that there are people who are uh, treated as if they are not real human beings, who are undocumented, who are upholding one of the most deeply cherished American values, which is freedom. Thank you so, so much for coming on our show. My name, once again, is Enrico Imanalo with another episode of Intentionally Act Live. Thanks. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Intentionally Act Live from our website, intentionallyact.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Submit your stories and questions for future episodes by emailing us at info at Until next time.